I uh, was pretty excited when uh, I was given the opportunity to come back here and uh, uh, very much look forward to coming and not so much just preaching, but just being with you all and uh, getting to know some of you uh, the last time I was here a couple months ago. And uh, so I thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, Brian. And uh, uh, I'd like to bring a message out of Jude. I understand you guys have been, have been uh, in Jude. And um, I'm going to do something a little out of the ordinary, and I'm jumping way ahead of where you're at. I'd like you to uh, turn to Jude, and if you don't remember where that is, just go to Revelations and turn left. And uh, it's just, uh, and uh, we'll be in verses 20 through 23 uh, this morning. Um, one thing about Jude, and, and I, uh, I trust, I, Terry and I have been talking a little bit, and, and uh, it's a letter that was written 2,000 years ago. It could have been written today. It could have been written today because it's a, it's, it's a universal letter because things don't change. As much as we think they do, Satan doesn't change. And, and those that oppose our Lord don't change. And uh, so we could, we, could have, we could have just received this letter. And that's what makes this letter so powerful. And uh, so if you're with me there, we'll get to the scripture in just a second. Uh, shortly bef- after 9-11... Um, our government mobilized the military for action. And the response from the soldiers who would be closest to the action was not only one of willingness, but also a type of eagerness. And to be clear, there was a sense of patriotism and desire to represent our country against those who wished to see us destroyed. But it was more than that. I was surprised to read that these soldiers wanted the chance to use the training that they'd been practicing for years without actually being put into action, put into harm's way. It was a desire to actually physically do what they'd been studying. They wanted to be able to show that they were worthy of all that had been invested in them. Think of it this way. I, uh, those, of, uh, those that know me well know I love baseball. And if a team only practices and never plays against an opponent, they become dulled in their senses and emotions, and, and they're not really going to be able to fully react to the situations that are real and meaningful. They'll never know if they're good enough to play against the best and will forever be a team that is theoretically good, but untested and inexperienced. In this short but powerful letter from Jude to the church, he spends the largest portion of the writing uh, to first stating his reason for writing. He starts off with, Exhorting the church to what? To contend for the faith. That's his purpose for writing this letter. He then focuses on relationships with God that were good. No, they're relationships that failed due to rebellion and disobedience. But as you move down through this, you come to the part of his letter where he writes out the action plan for the church in contending for the faith. Because that's not only the theme of his letter, It's also his charge to the church. What is he saying? Get in the fight. That's what he's talking about. The probable timeline of when Jude was written was, they're guessing somewhere around 60 AD average. Uh, And it places the church in the very real battlefield of persecution, both from the traditional Jews as well as from the Romans. 
writings from that era have survived and, and they tell of the Romans rounding up those suspected of being Christians and, and interrogating them and executing those found guilty of genuine faith because they tolerated, Rome tolerated no allegiance except to Caesar and to Rome. The people who belonged to Jesus Christ didn't really have to travel to the battle. It was raging all around them. But worse than that, Jude tells us there are enemies within the camp or double agents in the church. Those who professed with their mouths to be Christians, but their actions were determined to sow discord and actually to cause the weak to fall away. Jude simply identifies these wolves among the sheep, as Jesus calls them, as certain people. He gives no further specific identifier, but makes it clear that their actions will give them away. War, conflict, battlefields can seem exciting when they're just a video game or maybe a reenactment on the screen. But when it's all around you in real life, it takes on a whole new vivid and real dimension. It has tastes, smells, sounds, and atmosphere unlike those in our imaginations. This was the church that Jude was writing to as field correspondent? Well, maybe more correctly as a superior officer rallying the troops. It's, it's kind of easy to get sidetracked when studying this letter because leading up to the passage that we're going to read in just a minute, um, there are references to supernatural battles and incidents that are taken from other scriptural writings, not found in our canonical Bible, in, in our Bible, but, but writings that they understood and they accepted in that day, they were really familiar with them. And it's easy to take our eyes off of why Jude is writing this letter. We need to remember it's a call to contend for the faith, to get into the fight. Everything that we read in Jude needs to be read under that context, because that's why he's writing Verses 5 through 19, I know you haven't gotten there yet, but they're very colorful. And they can distract us from the purpose of the letter if we're not careful. It doesn't mean they're not, per, they're not uh, important and not full of, of wonderful study and things that we can learn. But if we're, if we're not careful, we can be distracted from the message of why Jude is writing in the first place. Jude is drawing the battle lines. And he's making a clear distinction of who it is that is fighting against the church of Jesus Christ. Like any great writer, he doesn't waste his words. They're full of deep meaning and knowledge. Goodness, you could spend months and months just on those verses 5 through 19. But we need to remember that he is building to the reason he's writing this letter. Jude uses these verses to show us clearly that God can not only be known but that we can be assured that the God of creation, the God of Abraham, the God who led his people out of Egypt, he's the same God today. He's the rock of our salvation, the unchangeable one. Who he was is who he is. And that means that rebellion against him and against his church will result in the destruction of those who stand against him. Maybe not at this moment, but it will result in it. This also means, though, conversely, and, and more encouraging for us, that since he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then we can have peace and assurance that when he saves us, it's a salvation that's assured. We don't have to have any need to wonder or worry if he will change his mind or his standards. 
He doesn't. God has drawn the battle lines and Jude has highlighted them for us, being clear that those who stand against God's church and against God will not escape judgment. That, that brings us back to the theme of the letter, contend for the faith. I'm, if you get tired of hearing that, I'm sorry. That's what Jude wants to say over and over again, contend for the faith. But I don't know about you, but that raises a couple questions for me. How can I be equipped to contend and what does contending for the faith look like? Well, let's dive into that. If you're with me, Jude will start in verse 20 and read through verse 23. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt, saving others by snatching them out of the fire, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So I, I, I have two points that I want to talk about this morning. They're both under the same heading of contending. But the first uh, point is contending, in, and it's called preparing for the battle. And the second point under contending is taking the fight to the enemy. And uh, so as we look at preparing for the battle, I think we need to, let's place some context to this letter. And namely, Jude's dedication to those he's calling to battle because he starts this passage, this section of his letter with the word beloved. It's, it's one of those words that we use a lot. Do we actually know what it means or are we just using it because it sounds good? You see, he used the same word in verse 3 when addressing the readers as beloved. If you go back to verse 3. In, in David Helm's commentary on Jude, he says this. This is interesting. In the Greek-speaking world, beloved was intimately tied to those undergoing suffering and death. It wasn't just a term of endearment. It was an identifier. He further asserts that it is the same word in the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament. Um, where you look at Abraham where he's been told to sacrifice his only son Isaac. And in that translation, in the Greek Septuagint, the only son, Isaac, is described with this word, beloved. He's about to be sacrificed. It's also the same word that God used at the Mount of Transfiguration when he proclaims that Christ is my beloved son. And Jesus was moving towards his eventual crucifixion as part of the Father's plan of salvation for his lost children. So that certainly fits perfectly, doesn't it? Understanding this leads us to realize that the word beloved is not accidental or flippantly used, but it's actually an identifier. He's telling the people he knows who they are. When seen in the context of Jude's letter in its entirety, it actually places the reader in the proper context as one who is suffering and dying for Christ. As this most likely was sent during a time of great persecution, Jude makes it clear that the letter, and more importantly the message, is for those on the front lines of proclaiming and living the gospel of Jesus Christ. In essence, this gives us a picture of one who has great affection and great empathy towards those he is calling to stand up and be counted and, and to then move to the fight. Well, the moment in the letter has now arrived where Jude's going to lay out for us what a preacher might call the application points, or perhaps a bit more plainly, 
Jude's now going to explain how to contend for the faith. That's essentially what he starts with in verse 20. And, and he gives us three things that we can do to, pre, uh, to prepare for the battle. The first is build ourselves up in our most holy faith. I'll repeat these again as I go. Pray in the Holy Spirit. And the third one is keep ourselves in the love of God. Well, if we start with building ourselves up in our most holy faith, we should start by realizing that our, that our faith is unique. It's, it's an intimacy of believing. If you think about this, it's, it's believing and trust. We are the only, if you, I, I hate to use the word religion when talking about Christianity, but if you put us in the broad ca- uh, uh, category of religion, this is the only religion in the entire world that is based on relationship, that is based on a personal relationship with God, and it is based on faith. And that makes us unique, and it makes our faith unique, because it's an intimacy of believing and trust that can only be ascribed as holy, since the center of all our faith is God himself. And and we're to build ourselves up in our most holy faith while we wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. That, That word mercy is like a sweet aroma to the Christian, because it's God's mercy on us that has brought us to him in the first place. Well, hang on to that word mercy because we're going we're gonna to get into that in a little bit. And it's going to have a vital role in our contending for the faith. We must not forget that our faith is not static. Like every aspect of our relationship with our Lord, it should be a process where we're growing and becoming more like Christ. Being transformed as we walk and trust step by step. The warning here... I, I, if you haven't heard me preach too often, I love word pictures. I love to use word pictures as I preach. And the warning here is that our world is like a moving body of water, and we're in it. If we're not moving toward our Lord, then we're moving away from him, being swept along in the current of this world. We are not static. We don't get to just stand where we are. We're always moving. Our relationship with our Lord and Savior and our God must be dynamic, if for no other reason than the fact that he has stated he's a jealous God. And instead of that being some fallible human emotion tied to selfishness, what God is saying when he says, I'm a jealous God, is he's saying that he desires all that belongs to him. And since we're his then our devotion belongs to him. His jealousy is actually an expression of his love for us and his, his desire for us to be totally dependent on him. So as we look at building ourselves up in the faith, we see that Jude has already made reference to the church's personal study of the scriptures in verse 5. If you have your Bibles open, look back to verse 5. Because he says this little phrase, he says, Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, I'll stop right there because it's a bit oddly worded for us. And it could be easily glossed over. But Jude is saying they need to continue what they've been building. It's, it's the word picture, again, of a building being constructed. And the exhortation from Jude is don't stop building. Don't slow down. Keep it on. Keep going. Keep building it. It could even mean that you were building, but you've stopped And Judah's exhorting you to get back to what you're supposed to be doing, building. Either way, it means get back to work. Get on it. 
We're supposed to keep doing what is necessary, studying the word for understanding and application. And we do this to align ourselves with the Holy Spirit as as his heart and the Father's heart are one. So we align ourselves with what the Holy Spirit is doing in us and we become aligned with the Father's heart. The scriptures reveal the heart and purpose of our Lord and the more we study and begin to understand, the closer our hearts begin to align with the purposes that God has for us through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. When I want to understand or learn how to build a wooden rocking chair. I never assume that the knowledge will come through osmosis. I can't just stand there and go, oh, okay, now I know how, and it just comes to me and I just build it. I study and learn the plans and techniques it will take to not only complete the task, but to build the chair in the way that it is closest to the ideal. That's how it's done. If I would do that for something as mundane as a rocking chair, then how can I assume that it will take any less to learn about the God of all creation? Well, then Jude tells us that we are to be praying in the Holy Spirit. That's our second sub-point under there, praying in the Holy Spirit. Um, Terry and I were talking there. Uh, we have come to just love this writer, this this scholar, this theologian named Thomas Manton from the 1600s. And, and uh, the man writes just the most gorgeous, deep, and beautiful uh, uh, realizations about the scripture. And he says this about this passage here, praying in the Holy Spirit. There is the gracious assistance of the Holy Spirit in prayer. We should take great care about how we approach God in prayer. The correct way is to go to God with affection confidence, and reverence. The Spirit helps us with all three of these aspects in prayer. Paul, in his writing to the Romans in uh, chapter 8, verse 26, so that's Romans eight twenty-six, he says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. <laughs> the Holy Spirit knows what's in our hearts. And he conveys these to the Father. He knows what is the Father's heart, and he impresses our hearts with that. It's a a two-way street. It's not just the Holy Spirit telling the Father our hearts. It's him impressing on us the Father's heart. It's, 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 It's even to the place where, have you ever prayed, and you're just at a place where you don't even have words? You just, you just you're just offering up your heart in a just a pleading ache or whatever. And the Holy Spirit, that's, <laughs> that's what he excels in. He excels in being able to take that and deliver that to the Father in a way that, that only he can do. The message here is that we are to work at aligning our hearts with the heart of the Holy Spirit as he works the Father's will in us. It's all a, a, a wonderful symphony where the Holy Spirit and the Father are one in, in purpose and will, and he just works in us uh, through the Holy Spirit. And as we begin to ask and desire those things that the Holy Spirit desires for us, we can be assured he will answer those prayers that we pray. Someone might ask, well, how do I know that my prayers will be answered? I take you to James chapter 4, verse 3. This is going to be a strange way to do it, but we're going to go the, uh, the converse way. 
You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. That's why we don't get what we pray for, because we're asking for the wrong things. But James doesn't leave us uh, with that. He says, ask, basically what he's telling us is ask for what is good, as God defines it, and your prayers will be answered. Jesus even tells us the same thing in Luke eleven thirteen. He says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He's going to give us everything we need. We can come to God in full confidence that not only does he desire to hear our hearts, but that we will be heard. What father is there who does not desire to hear from his children? I'm a grandfather. I love to have my grandchildren sit on my knee and talk to me and tell me their hearts. If this is so here on earth, then it's a faint and imperfect representation of our relationship with our Father in heaven. However, we need to come to God in reverence. It's a kind of a personal thing with me, I suppose, but it's a disturbing trend that people are trying to treat Jesus, our Savior, as a buddy. That's even the word that they use. It's, it's, it's true that he's our friend, but he is a friend who deserves our full respect and reverence. A truly intimate relationship is both personal and reverent. We need to have the respectful attitude of someone who does not take this relationship for granted, but understands the value of a God who calls us friend as well as his child. I was trying to come up with a word picture for this, and the only one I could come up with is kind of absurd, but here it is. If I was guilty, if I had been, if I'd done it and I had been convicted and was guilty of some sort of crime, and the President of the United States has the power to do this and he pardoned me, and through the process got to know me and we became friends, I would never approach him shallowly by calling him buddy, but always approach him with the respect and reverence that he is due, all the while acknowledging his friendship and being grateful for that, but never taking it for granted because he's the one who is responsible from sparing me from great punishment. And yet, that's the gospel that some would have us embrace, that Jesus is our buddy. Jesus said in John 15, greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his friend. And in less than 24 hours from when he said that, that's exactly what he did. How can I ever take a relationship with him lightly? Intimately? Yes. As close as a brother? Absolutely. But never with a flippancy that would forget the supreme sacrifice he made for me. God the Father is the author or architect of our salvation. It's because of his desire for our redemption that Jesus Christ became our willing sacrifice. Reverence should always be at the foundation of our prayers. Well, Jude comes to the third necessity for being prepared to contend for the faith. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God. In Paul's writings to the Philippians, uh, the second chapter, the 12th and 13th verses, He says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, 
Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I said this earlier, and it comes out again. Our growth in Christ is not a passive process. It, it is only really accomplished through our efforts and through God's grace. We need, to un, we need to study the word for understanding and application, but then we need to begin to apply it to our lives, asking God through the Holy Spirit to do for us what we cannot do ourselves. It's the example of taking the first step out in faith and God working in us as we step out to make it work. Is it our effort? Yes. But it's God's undergirding and strengthening us while, while we strive that causes us to grow. What might that look like? Well, maybe that's learning to make wise choices. Choosing my words. Walking the walk. And as I do these things, God is not only in the background, but he is in the middle of what I am doing. Growing me and giving me what I need to become more like Christ. It's God at work in me, but it's my obedience and trust in stepping out in faith that God takes and transforms into something unattainable without his work in me. I can't do it myself. I, uh, another word picture, it's like a father watching his child try to dig a hole in the dirt. And, and the child strains not being able to sink the shovel in very deep, you know. And the father picks up a shovel and he begins to help dig the hole. And then if he had more than just two arms at the same time, it's even more than that because then the child begins to see that the father has his hands on the shovel, the child's shovel as well, helping the child dig the hole all the while the hole's being dug. See, it's God helping us in the task, but also helping us in our own efforts as well. Well, these are the things we do in our lives to bring us to the place where we're the people that are ready to be used to do what Jude lists as the outward actions we do when contending for the faith. At last, we're at that place where, like the soldiers I mentioned at the outset, who were eager to put their training to use, we're, we're th- through our efforts and our training, we are now prepared to begin to step out to accomplish the task that's our purpose to begin with. And that's the second one, taking the fight to the enemy. And Jude lists three actions or practical applications that are areas where we can contend for the faith. Remember I said that word mercy? These are acts of mercy which lead me to assert, and and you'll see as we go along, if the Christian is marked by any behavior or attitude, it should be first mercy but mercy that is inspired and undergirded by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is important. Mercy that does not come from the Holy Spirit will prove shallow and often ends up in the disaster of good intentions and earthly shortcomings. It must be done through the Spirit. The first of these mercies is found in verse 22 when he says, having mercy on those who doubt. Doubt's a common struggle of the Christian. The scriptures give us numerous examples of, of believers in the New Testament and those who followed God in the Old Testament but had moments of doubt. While it's important for us to have mercy uh, for the brother and sister in Christ who has a period of doubting, I, I think this also speaks to a more fragile spirit in the brother or sister who are young in the faith or who are struggling. In our present day and age, doubt 
and the error of false doctrine are rampant. It's the result, I think, of partly of the information age in which we live. I saw it on the internet, so it must be true. That's not just a pathetic punchline anymore, is it? People who are young in the faith or who are fragile in the faith need mercy and not reproach. It's easy to be misled, but more so for the one whose faith and spiritual growth are new or lacking. It is a fact that James, uh, in his epistle, speaks about the double-minded man in in, uh, chapter 1, verse 8, where he says that they are unstable in all their ways. But then he doesn't doesn't leave us there because in chapter 4, verse 8, just exactly three chapters later, he calls the double-minded to purify their hearts. And this is a mercy that he is calling them to. Not a, not a dead end or endless loop of doubting where, where you're doubting and then you're not. And then you're doubting and then you're not. But it's a way to be strengthened and to mature, purifying the heart. We do this by study of the word, learning more and more of the God and Savior we serve. And then through active prayer, stepping out in faith as God leads us, giving our Lord the opportunity to show his faithfulness to us in this area of our lives. These are fragile people who can be lost to the world, but can also be drawn back deeper and stronger in the faith and who are called to be those who pursue these people who doubt as a method of contending for the faith. How do we do that? By being a true brother or sister in the faith. By, by having more than a lip service relationship with each other. You know, it's the, the old, how you doing? Yeah, how you doing? It's not that kind of relationship. It's a relationship that stops and listens to the answer. By having more than lip service relationship with each other, we we now can see them when they stumble or stutter in their walk, and we can be there to lead them back to the center of our Lord's will for them. We cannot have the impact on the lives of those who are in the faith but experiencing doubt or spiritual confusion or maybe even double-mindedness. We can't have an impact on them if we're not already in their lives. You might say, look, we're already busy. And besides, we have all the friends and family we desire. I've been in the scriptures most of my life, and I've not found that passage that speaks of Jesus turning away those who followed him. And I want to remind you, he had braggarts, liars, thieves, social climbers. Those are just the disciples. And they all betrayed him before the cross. But he never turned any of them away. He made room and time for each of them. I was thinking, just even as I was talking about this, one of the passages in the New Testament that impacts me a lot is the very fact that the man who knew who Jesus was, who proclaimed him as the Messiah, John the Baptist, and he had moments of doubt when he was in prison. And yet, what was Jesus' response? Tell him everything you've seen. Of course I am. You see, we each have one shot at this life, and no one knows tomorrow. Brian even said this. I was smiling when he said it, because it's right here. No one's even guaranteed their next breath. Will it be acceptable to answer our Lord when he asks if we love his children that we just didn't have the time or the emotional bandwidth. But before your possible objection gets to this gets too excited, let me be clear. None of us in this room are Jesus Christ. 
You cannot be there for every single person in the body, but you can be there for the one, or for two, or a few. Jude is reminding us that we are called to live in community with each other, and while I'm, I'm certainly not undermining the importance of family, I would remind you that there will only be one family in heaven, and that's the family of God. You know, you've probably heard stories of a mother who placed herself in danger in order to save her, one or more of her children. Or maybe like me, you read the article not too long ago where a young man's car was being carjacked out in front of his house and he was out confronting the carjacker and the carjacker pulled a gun and the father of the young man stepped in between to defuse the situation and took the bullet that was meant for his son. I would offer that having mercy on those who doubt is the same act of mercy, but for eternal consequences. If Jesus was, re- was revealing an a- eternal truth in Matthew 18, 22, where he tells, that's where he tells Peter that he should forgive his brother each time his brother wrongs him and asks forgiveness, not seven times, but 70 times seven then the truth that, one of the truths that he is showing us is that every time we come with a repentant heart to our Lord, we will be forgiven. Isn't that a wonderful truth? But in practice, it means that we need to have mercy on those who doubt every time. And this is much easier to say from the pulpit than it is to live out in personal relationship. Hi. <laughs> Hi. It's just like our Lord... that as I was working through this, I was put to the test with a young man that I've been working with. He has the burden of youth, of of young men. The certainty that he's usually right and the older folks are just out of step or worse, just plain ignorant. Anyway, he came up to me after the service and began speaking, asking questions and not really listening fully. The Holy Spirit caught me at that moment with the realization that I was facing the test of whether or not I talk a good game or I actually believe and put into practice what I teach. That was sobering, but, you know, it was also encouraging because I realized that the Holy Spirit was demonstrating that he's at work in my life. And, and, And he was saying, hey, mercy is not in finite supply with our Lord and it's not to be hoarded in the, it's not to be a hoarded commodity in me or in any of the people of my church. It's to be a ministry of, of saving the fragile and the doubting from destruction. Well, the second mercy is also in verse 22, and it's found in this uh, to be uh, saving others by snatching them out of the fire. And, and this must mean pursuing the sinner. The reason I say that is, is um, those who are saved are not in danger of hellfire, but those who are already lost will only have the opportunity of this lifetime. To be an instrument in God's hands to save the lost from eternal damnation, could there be any higher calling? It's possible that some are saved by the hearing uh, of a street corner preacher. I remember that when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s. It, you'd see him every so often. But more likely, it's going to be through the work of the Holy Spirit in us as we befriend and love the lost. Peter, in his first epistle, 
1 Peter 3.15, he says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. To be clear, it's always through the work of the Holy Spirit that anyone comes to Christ. But in most cases, the Spirit uses the children of God as instruments of mercy in the lives of the lost. We have a responsibility to advocate for the lost and to be the reflection of Christ to the lost so that they would desire to know the one who has saved us. What's, why are you like that? What is so different about you? To any who would be, even at this moment, thinking they're, in, they're too imperfect to be a good witness, I would remind you, this struck me really hard. Again, the masses turned their backs and walked away from Jesus Christ. He was the perfect image of the Father, still is. So it isn't up to us, but it's in the hands of the Holy Spirit as he works out the Father's perfect will in us. See, there are no perfect words you can speak that will bring a lost soul to Christ. John 6, makes it clear. No one comes to the Father, no one comes to salvation unless the Father draws them. It's not my words. I'm being used, but it's not my words. It's the Holy Spirit. Our role in all of this is to be useful. Sometimes I wonder if I'm a useful idiot, but, but that's my carnal nature making excuses for my lack of availability. I'm responsible to be willing and ready to be used by our Lord. He's the one who makes my fallible words and actions useful to the kingdom. Diane's heard me say this so many times, but I can preach the absolute most perfect sermon that's ever been preached. That's a a wish. But I can preach that, and it could have zero effect. And I can preach the worst sermon, homiletically or whatever, that's ever been preached, and thousands can come to know the Lord. Because it's not about me, and it's not about my words. It's about my usefulness to the Holy Spirit and His work in the hearts of the lost. Romans, uh, Paul, again, in Romans ten fourteen says, How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And if that word preaching is troublesome, then substitute the word speaking. How are they to hear unless someone tells them? By way of reminder, we're speaking of the lost being saved from eternal damnation literally out of the fire is there any higher calling jude speaks of the third mercy in verse 23 where he says that we are to show others mercy with fear hating even the garment stained by the flesh it's interesting as i read through this passage and read through uh, several commentators nobody's super clear about what this means because were not back then when he wrote it and so it's not entirely clear but it seems to be when you put it in context with the whole letter here Jude's Jude's talking uh, he's referring back to what he said in verses 3 and 4 it seems to be dealing with the hardened sinner maybe even those certain people that he was talking about earlier if this is so then the idea here of extending mercy actually has a condition or a caveat to it. We're to be marked as people who have mercy, but that phrase with fear lends a somewhat sobering attitude to it. 
As we extend mercy, we put ourselves into the place where sin is prevalent. And Jude is saying that we are to understand that we are liable and susceptible to the sin that's all around us. We are to be careful lest we fall into the very sin we're hoping to help another from. I know that this is uh, from a few years back. Uh, Some of you that are younger than me, this video game will probably date me when I say it. But I remember a mother telling me how her son was addicted to the video game Minecraft. And uh, back then it was called Mind Crack because it was so addictive. And, and she wanted to, to understand why her son was addicted and, and to help her son. And to do that, she felt she needed to learn how to play the game so she could play with him so that she could understand her son and be able to talk to him about its addictive nature. Get all that? Okay, that's setting it up. What she confesses while she's telling me this is that rather than help him, she became addicted herself to the game. And she literally had to get rid of it in order to free herself of its influence. The people that Jude is referring to here are most likely recalcitrant sinners. Those those who are not immune, but they're hardened to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They, they aren't interested. They, and, and, and they actually might even work to harm or damage the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's certainly talking about all those who would work uh, against those who claim the name of Christ. They're not the typical person we would think need our mercy as they appear to be willingly headed towards eternal destruction. The key phrase here is with fear, as we're to be careful not to not become of the world or become so like the world that they can't see Christ in us because of the stain of the world on us. And if I had any advice or counsel on this, is that this is an area where it's important that you never go it solo. You never go it alone. This is best done in pairs or teams even more, with some supporting the efforts in prayer and fasting. That's how great the challenge is for this. Jude adds the phrase, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. The flesh always refers to the, to the sinful nature of a person. It's not the garment or the outside of the sinner, but the sin that's from within. As strongly worded as this is, it seems to be cluing us in that these are unrepentant sinners, those who have been shown the light, but refuse and even fight against the light. Jude doesn't tell us to wash our hands of them, having nothing more to do with them, but he tells us to have mercy on them. This is a rather stark and shocking exhortation because these are the people who would bring the very wood for the fire needed to sacrifice us on and Jude is telling us that we should have mercy on them. That's not just surprising. It almost sounds suicidal. And yet, I would remind us all that Jesus knew full well who Judas Iscariot was when he called him. He knew what was in his heart and what he would eventually do, and yet Jesus poured himself into Judas as he did for the other disciples. It cannot simply be the case that Jesus was just biding his time until Judas played his part and betrayed Jesus as part of the Father's plan. That can't be it, because Jesus loved Judas and showed him mercy all throughout his ministry here on earth. 
You say, well, how do you know that? Well, first, you can start with the Last Supper and where Judas was sitting. But there are no scriptural references that, when talking about the disciples, that have the all except Judas part. Jesus was working with the disciples all except Judas. He's over here. Uh Uh-uh. Judas was never excluded. Judas received mercy and love for the entire time. Everything that you see in the, in the New Testament, think about the time when the disciples went out two by two and they were performing miracles. Judas was in that group. Think about what he fed the 5,000 and the 4,000 and, and the disciples scooping, you know, first of all, distributing this food miraculously and then scooping up the leftovers. Judas was in that group because he was one of the disciples. This exhortation from Jude isn't included here because it's easy but because it's difficult and it models exactly the actions of our Lord. How do we accomplish this? I'm not entirely sure. But I believe that it can only be done through the leading of the Holy Spirit. And it can only be done together as a body. I believe that this is an area where the church first needs to come together in prayer and fasting, asking our Lord to give us humble boldness and a spirit of obedience. This is most likely going to be relevant in, as the days progress. And we don't have the luxury of sitting back and passing that responsibility on to another. Okay. Is anyone just feeling exhausted after all this? I confess that this message that Jude gives us doesn't leave room for the position of benefactor. Say, what do you mean? Well, you know, the person who gives money but doesn't get involved. It doesn't leave room for the position of full-time mission supporter. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, the one who wants to help set up and clean up but doesn't actually want to have to go out and do anything. Or the one who supplies you with the bottled water while you're running the race but doesn't actually want to get in the race themselves. There's no room for that here. Unless you are the sole inhabitant on a deserted island, then you are the very person Jude is writing to. We're all in this together, and we rise and fall by the power and work of the Holy Spirit in us. Well, let me see if I can kind of pull all this together. Because Jude wrote this compact and densely worded letter to rouse the church to action. Jude's very clear about the purpose and message that he is writing. Contend for the faith. The world is arrayed against the church of Jesus Christ, and we are not, we're not to make peace with them, but we're to contend for the faith, to stand up for the gospel of Jesus Christ, to speak the truth of the word. It's interesting, Jude doesn't assume that we can just suit up, though, and, and get in the fight, but he makes sure that we know that the, there needs to be preparation that we have to undertake in order to be ready for what's to come. Don't jump over that. And only then can we contend for the faith. We've been prepared, and we're ready to stand and fight. Not as a soldier trying to kill his opponent, but as one who is wanting to show mercy to the very one who would slay the image of God that we're to exhibit. The most striking and difficult message that Jude is giving us is that those of us who are called Christians, those that claim the name of Jesus Christ, We're to be known as people who show mercy as a purposeful act that we learn from our Lord. Let it be said that instead of being known as the ones who stand apart and point fingers and condemn the world, we would be known as the ones who seek out the lost, 
who show mercy to the very ones who seek to destroy us and the love and the Lord that we serve. Let's pray. Lord, this is uh, this is a difficult message. It's a difficult passage. It's easy to love those that love us. It's so much harder to love those that are fighting to destroy us. I pray uh, I pray that we would not skip over the, the preparation, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts, that you would you would prepare us, our minds, prepare our bodies, Lord, for uh, us to contend for the faith, and then that you would help us to to step out and to do just that. It's not a message of two thousand years ago, Lord, it's a message for today. We thank you for the fact that the Bible is not just a good history book, Lord, but the, the Bible is, is true and vital and vibrant and is necessary for our lives today, Lord. And I thank you for the wisdom and the perfection of your will in that. I pray now that you just continue to anoint our time together in your name. Amen.